Welcome to Always Bet on Black. My name is Paula Glover, President and CEO of the American Association of Blacks in Energy. Today we have with us Talisa Tolliver, General Manager, Renewable Power for Chevron. Talisa is actually the chair of my board. Um, she is a friend, a mentor, and an inspirational leader. Do not know Talisa and four colleagues have recently written a book, the energy within us, I encourage you all to get it. And we're gonna start our first question really is to Lisa, tell me um, why write a book? So I, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think you know the story that uh, the co-authors, uh, we all were kind of sitting around after one of our AVE conferences and we were talking about our experiences. And uh, one of the co-authors, um, Hilda said, you know, guys, we should really write a book. And as we were tossing champagne, we kind of laughed and yeah, you know, and then she said, no, I'm serious about this. We really should write a book. And I think it really is about memorializing something that we know to be true. And that is that we all came from different backgrounds. We all came from different experiences, but we've all had um, successful careers in the energy industry. And I think we wanted to make sure that people understood that it was doable, it can happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but also to understand what we went through to get uh, to where we are, right? And so I think the, the book is really around uh, really talking about our experiences, but also talking about our lessons learned and, and what we've learned and hoping we could pass that off to others. And so to me, that that really was the crux of the whole the whole book. But it was it was um, it was a labor of love. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, we all have such a strong relationship. And I think the fact that we decided that, you know, all proceeds are going to go to scholarships also sort of speaks to our intent, right? So we wanted to make sure that we walk in the talk around, here's what we've done, here's what we believe, and here's how we want to support, you know, others coming behind us. So was it a hard, was it a difficult process for you? Um, how do you kind of, in terms of a writing process, decide, yeah, these are the experiences that I think I want to share um, because I think people will maybe, I think you have to prioritize. I think we can learn. I know, because I know you personally, that we could probably learn from all of your experiences, but you had to prioritize which ones you wanted to share. And so how did, what was your process in kind of doing that? Well, for me, it was really focused on what I thought it was uh, those important nuggets that people could take away, right? And so, you know, I started with my my own background, you know, from from small town girl in Oklahoma, and 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 to me, the reason I wanted to talk about that was for people to understand that your background really doesn't matter. Um, you know, it really is about what sort of goals you have, what values, what you're willing to sacrifice. Um, you know, all the things that you need to do to get where you need to, to, to get to. And so for me, it was really about what are those things that I can talk about in my life that I think will resonate with folks, um, will get into thinking about their own journey, um, and also just some really critical lessons learned that, you know, I would hope, you know, others don't have to go through. We all have our own, our own journey, but you just kind of hope that others don't have to go through some of those things. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, and that the environment is changing. Yeah. So I, I'm going to, we're going to start from the beginning. Um, and, and I will tell you that for me, um, I think what resonated most with me, 
um, in your chapter were really some of your early experiences and how much, how similar they were to how I remember my own life growing up. Um, and, and, and there's a bit of duality. I think yeah. there's actually a lot of duality in that. Um, so, you know, when you grow up in an all white neighborhood and then choose to go to an HBCU, I didn't go to an HBCU, but I started in an all black neighborhood and then moved to an all white neighborhood. And so, you know, talk a little bit about like what that experience was like for you. So, because, right, you have, as you talked about it in the book, um, growing up, people who probably, you know, people around you who weren't your family members who had different type of expectations for you. And, and probably, I think what you said was thought that you should limit what you should expect of your own life because of your circumstances. Is that a fair, first of yeah. all, restating assessment of what well, that was for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think people, you know, when you live in a small town, um, a lot of people, they haven't experienced a lot of things. And so how they view success is quite different than kind of how I viewed success, right? And so for them, and, and some of those folks are still in the same place, right? So, so they're very comfortable being where they, where, the, where they were and where they are today. But I think what's unique about you know, this sort of duality of African-Americans is that we do have to step in and out of all these different worlds, right? And so my parents were teachers that were college professors at HBCUs. I lived in a small white town of uh, probably less educated in terms of, of, of college degrees than, than not. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of living in these sort of different worlds from the beginning, right? Because as I grew up, in Oklahoma, um, you know, small town, good values, the whole thing. But then also my my parents were professors at HBCUs where you were taught about who you were and what the expectations for you were and the fact that you were, um, you know, being given things that maybe other people were not in terms of education and exposure. And so there's all these expectations, but then you're living in a place where the expectations are um, not even close to that. And then, and, and you start to feel like, how dare I think I can do better. Right. And so I think, you know, being young and trying to walk in both of those worlds, uh, made me realize that I just had to kind of be who I was and, 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 and walk in my space proudly. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I do have different sides of myself that like right now I would never want to live and go back there but I still, and I, and I know that as I grow up and, 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 and as I've seen things, there was, you know, things I just wouldn't tolerate today, right? So there was a level of racism. There was a lot of um, uh, misogyny. There was a lot of things that are just not acceptable today. Um, but it was the world I grew up in, right? So it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 a, it's, a strange, it's a strange world that we have to kind of pop in and out of, but I think it prepared me to be able to do that long-term and to be able to do that for the rest of my life, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I've always thought that was a benefit, right? Yeah. So, you know, I talk in the book about people saying, well, you know how to talk to quote them and you know how to work in these worlds. Uh, and it's just because of the way I, I was brought up. Yeah. So tell me as a, a young woman, you know, in high school, middle school, who did you aspire to be or what did you aspire to be? How did, how did you see your life kind of playing out? 
so I, I, um, <laughs> so I grew up in a family of uh, incredible singers and vocalists, uh, incredible talent. My mother was a poet, uh, an English literature professor, uh, a writer, uh, but I also grew up with folks who were lawyers and um, you know, accountants and teachers. And so I had this real good sort of mix of, okay, what do you, what do you want to be and, and what's out there for you? And I, and I actually grew up just thinking I would never be, I knew it would be in the business world, but I thought it would be in a more creative kind of way. So I grew up thinking that I would leave school, I'd go to college somewhere, and then I'd wind up in Los Angeles or New York, and I was going to be in the music business. Um, in some way, shape, or form. And then I was going to somehow translate that into, you know, some other sort of creative outlets. And so I never thought I would wind up where I wound up. And 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 so a bit of a unicorn, you know, in a whole company of engineers with somebody who really just wanted to to use my talents to to you know make people feel something. So and does it seem um, a bit ironic to you looking back now that you grew up in a town where there were a lot of people who worked in oil and gas who didn't look anything like you and yet here you sit. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, you know, um, I think there's a saying that says something like, um, you know, kind of your life gets in the way of the best laid plans, right? And so um, I did grow up in, you know, an oil and gas uh, community farming community, but most of those folks were not, were, were um, what we would today call uh, O&M workers, right? So they were the guys out on the rigs. Mm -hmm. um, they were the guys, um, you know, where, where I say in operations where the rubber meets the road, but they weren't the, the folks that were, you know, making decisions about how money is going to be spent. They weren't the guys, you know, sitting in the office. And so seeing how hard that life was and seeing how uh, people were struggling, uh, you know, made me want to go in a total different direction. You know, it wasn't, wasn't something that I wanted to, to, be, a, to be a part of. And, and I saw people get hurt, you know, to be quite honest with you, um, in that industry. And so it just wasn't something I was, I was interested in. So it is incredibly ironic uh, that I've spent uh, my entire career in the oil and gas industry. <laughs> Guy got jokes. Yes. <laughs> Guy's got some jokes. He got jokes. He does. Absolutely. So what made you change your mind? So, um, you know, I talk in the book about how I made decisions, you know, based on money. And, you know, during my college days, um, you know, I made money in the in the in the industry, right? So I I was going to college, but I had a band. I managed a band. Uh, we made good money for college students. We traveled on the weekends. We bought our own RV. We did all this stuff. And then I realized that I was the one making my business decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And the artists were just being the artists. They were, oh, I'm just going to be creative. That's all I can do. And my in my mind, and I was going to school to be a business grad. In my mind, it was like, well, yeah, we. We have to eat, right? So, so for me, it was like being focused on the biz side of things. That yes, we can be creative, but there's this whole idea of a starving musician, just not something I wanted to to, to do. And so, the more and more I learned about the industry and how I saw incredibly talented people, 
um, that, you know, were barely surviving. Um, you know, I started to kind of shift around, you know, is it, is it luck? Is it talent? You know, what is it? What, what is that special sauce that makes someone successful? And so when I got out of college, um, you know, I really, I had three offers. Uh, one was in manufacturing and, and two was in oil and gas. And oil and gas offered me the most money. And that was what I picked. And, and I think I talk in the book about how that decision really helped inform a lot of my other decisions that I made throughout my career and being unapologetic about the fact that money matters. Mm-hmm. Right. There's... there's um a sense of, I think, real authenticity about the fact that you can voice that, right? That, yeah, money does matter in my decision-making. And, you know, in, in some ways, sometimes we have these, we can have these ideas that it should not, money should have no place in the discussion. It should be about what is the work, what's the worth of the work, you know, all this other stuff. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And, and when I read that, I thought, okay, because absolutely that's how I got my first job in this industry was they offered me more money. It wasn't even a lot more money. Back then it seemed like a lot of money. Like now I was like, I made a whole decision on a few thousand dollars. But back then I was like, you gonna pay me that much? That's the job I'm gonna take. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I, I know about you, Talisa, and, and, and those people who are listening know about you is that you always seem to have Um, such clarity around your voice and the ability to be unapologetic about your opinions and your thoughts. And so I want to talk a little bit about like, how were you able to cultivate that? And, and is it just how your family helped you cultivate that? Or did you have experiences? Because it's, it's hard to just be like, um, you know, emphatic about this is kind of who I am. and, And it's important for me not to um, shift and shape, shift and shape that to accommodate somebody else's level of comfort. Can you talk a little bit about like how did you get to be that person? Yeah, so I I I do think it's evolved over time. And when I first came out of college, I mean, well, I'll even start back when I first when I first went to college, and you know, coming from a small town in Oklahoma, you know, I just really thought I was going to be behind everybody else. And, and then when I got to college, I found out I wasn't. And so I started just to gain more and more confidence. And then when I got into the workforce, well, a few, one of a few females, but then certainly uh, one of a very limited number of, of, of black females, I got to a point where if I don't, if I don't state my case, it's not gonna be stated, right? And if I don't voice my opinion, it's not gonna be voiced. And so now I will tell you early in my career, um, you know, uh, that, was, that was viewed as, you know, not, so, not such a good thing, right? And not so positive. Um, you know, Talisa, you, you've only been here a few years and, you know, you're asking for promotion and you're asking questions around why this person is, is, is moving up and you're not. And, you know, you just need to be patient, you know? And, and my response would be, well, I'll just be as patient as they are. They are, because they're not patient. I don't intend to be patient. And, you know, so that rubbed people the wrong way, to be totally honest with you, when I first started. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, and I think it was just because of the way I was raised and my the role models in my family, um, I didn't care. I just said, well, that's that's the truth of the matter, and that's how I view it. And so 
Um, but I did learn to, I did learn to articulate my feelings in a different way, right? And because at first I think it was with more emotion than sort of fact and, and authenticity, it was with more emotion. And I think I moved to where it's like, look, I'm gonna be very deliberate about what I say, but I'm gonna say what I think needs to be said. Okay. So I wanna ask, have you ever been in a situation where you felt a little bit of imposter syndrome? Because you strike me as someone who's never felt that, which is super um, cool. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I don't. I honestly, I don't think. I don't think that I that I have because I've just always felt like um, I, you know, if I worked hard, I was destined to do well and 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 to progressing whatever I wanted to do and that that yes there are barriers out there but you know you 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 go through them or you go around them and so um I don't think I've ever had that feeling that I didn't belong somewhere or I hadn't uh worked hard enough to get wherever I was and I think it's quite the opposite I think what I felt is that I should be farther than I am really yeah. so how how do you deal with that uh, Cabernet, uh, no, <laughs> really robust cabs. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I think I deal with it um, by trying to remember to be grateful at all times, right? Mm. And so I try to balance that real ambition and sometimes a little bit of anger around uh, where I see myself versus where I am. And I balance that with look at how far you've come, right? And look at where you came from and look at what you've done and look at how many people you've helped and all those things. And so I just try to balance it with a certain amount of, of gratitude and, and gratefulness for where I am. Um, but I'm always striving to be where I think I should be. And, 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 and I, I guess I get to a point, if, if I get to where I'm satisfied, uh, what will that feel like? You know, what kind of energy will I continue to have? And so I just think I want to continue to to, to strive. So. so do you think there's a point in time where you will be satisfied the way that you just described it? Or is it really just about striving for the next thing, no matter what that thing may be? Well, I mean, I think, you know, eventually age kids up with you right you gotta go mm -hmm. sit down right so, so I would say it that way I mean I think that 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 at a certain point um I don't I, I would say that I'll stop stri striving and trying to progress I think I will just want to give in a different way okay. so I'll, I'll, I guess I would think about it that way so you know right now I still think I have a, a, a lot to offer uh professionally and personally and I want to continue and, and I don't want to, you know, I always tell people I don't tread water well, so I need to be moving up. Um, uh, and so that's kind of my, my view today, but there certainly will come a time when I say, okay, um, you know, this, this, this strive for progression, uh, it's, it's time to let somebody else take the reins and, um, but I will still want to, to be thinking about what my next is and is it 
writing a book? Is it writing poetry? Is it mentoring? Is it, you know, all these things that I still have the capability and capacity to do? Um, I, you know, my, my father used to say, I'd rather wear out than rust out. Mm. And so, you know, I just always want to be um, uh, making sure that I'm contributing somewhere in some, in some way. So, you know, very early in your book, you, you talk really briefly about the fact that your parents divorced when you were in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. You have two brothers. Three. Where, three brothers. Where do you fall in the lineup? I'm number two. So you second, you're number two, only girl. Yes. Um, and then later in the book, you, you, you actually emphasize three times that relationships matter. Mm-hmm. Relationships, I, I, and so let, I, w- I want to learn a little bit from you about, you know, how did kind of your early childhood um, watching relationships and your own relationships kind of inform the way you think about relationships in a very professional capacity um, and, and how you in, you're able to, you know, either define relationships maybe in a specific way, they may be different. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'd, I'd love to hear like what the link is and what the learnings were from, you know, a sixth grade, sixth grade Talisa and a more seasoned Talisa, <laughs> not completely seasoned, but more seasoned, a little bit more seasoned. I. I... I mean, it's a good question. I think I boil everything down to trust, Mm. right? So even if it's family members or good friends or professional relationships, at the end of the day, it's all about trust. And so, and I I think I learned that, you know, through going through, you know, the divorce of my parents and trying to, you know, watching people think, you know, that they had to pick a side and, you know, feeling, you know, that, 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 that somehow um, there was some failure in our family. Um, and then you watch the behaviors of others and, and you start to understand who you can trust and who you can't trust. And so, you know, I certainly, um, I love my family and I love my friends, uh, but at the end of the day, it's about trust. And I trust some of them more than I trust others. And so I think that that was kind of the lesson that I learned is that people, you, you can't build a relationship based on too many other things. I mean, the primary, the primary factor there is trust. You know, do, do, I, do I trust this person enough to actually um, be, be authentic with them, be able to say what I want to say without... Um, I'm not gonna say without judgment, because I think there's always judgment, but, but without, you know, some sort of repercussions, right? And so, and do they behave in a way that shows me that they actually care about me or not, right? Or do they only uh, come to me when they need something? Uh, do they only come to me when there's trouble? Um, you know, how, how do they share and how do they, how do they build that trust on a, on a day-to-day basis? And so I think, taking that and I think going through life and understanding and finding out that um, there were people that I trusted that I shouldn't have right personally and professionally mm-hmm. uh, you start to realize the value of trust um, and then translating that into the business world you know I think it's it's even more imperative because you're making um, decisions 
that can impact your bottom line for quite some time. And somebody could come by with a flashy deal. I can offer you more money. But at the end of the day, if you don't have if you don't have a relationship with that company, if you don't trust the person that's sitting across the table from you, you're not going to do that deal. So, I mean, what, what what I hear you saying then is that in the even in the business world, um, who the people are does kind of matter. That it's not just money, right? I, I think there's a narrative about business that it's only about money. Right. And that money is the driver. And so would you say that your experience would tell you that that's actually not the whole picture? It's not the whole picture. It, it never is. Um, when, when you think about, you know, I think about um, how people make decisions about companies that we're going to do business with. Right. You've got company A, B, C or D. Uh, you're going to pick the one that you've seen their work. Um, you know, you know, their staff, you know, their leadership, you know what their um, corporate culture is, all those things lead to a level of trust versus somebody else that, that you don't know, right? And that's why, you know, even when we talk about, um, uh, and I'm going to change the subject a little bit, even when you talk about doing business, you know, Black businesses, how, do, how are they able to come in and build that same level of trust against, you know, a company that's been um, working, you know, had a relationship with a company like Chevron for 10 years? Right. And so for me, it is, I mean, yes, it has to make economic sense. Yes, it has to make business sense. Yes. But at the end of the day, it's about who, what relationships do I have with this company? Um, do I really believe in this leadership? Do I have a history where they performed at the levels that they said? And that's about trust. So how do you learn that type of discernment? So you know, because um, <laughs> you're talking about stuff that's not necessarily on a balance yeah. sheet. You're talking about a little bit of just kind of a sense of what that human interaction is and being able to judge yeah. it's authentic um, and then what that value is. So, so I, I think people will show themselves to you. Um, and I think particularly in times of stress, people show themselves to you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so. If, 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 you know, it takes a minute to, to, to build a strong relationship. So, you know, if you're really, you know, if you're doing a one-time deal and it's a 30-day deal, who cares, right? It's a transaction, right? But if you're trying to do something where you're trying to, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's very, very impactful, um, it takes time. And I would say that's personal and professionally, right? <laughs> so it takes time to build that level of trust um, um, and, and to put yourself out there. Um, to be able to, to, to make the right things happen. So, and, and I also think that, I still think you have to have a certain level of, you know, talk about emotional quotient, high, you know, emotional intelligence is so important um, because you can't be in business development and not be able to read the room. Mm. And, you know, I see people and I watch the behaviors, but more than that, I listen to what they say, I listen to what they don't say, because that's just as important. Um, and so to me, it really is about how do I take the data that I have from them uh, to be able to understand what they're trying to accomplish. Hopefully they're listening to me, they can see what I'm trying to accomplish. And then how do we build that mutual trust? Have you ever had the experience where you may have misread a person and that it had a real impact because you just misread it. And if you have, what did you learn from that? 
So personally, absolutely. <laughs> and um, what I learned from that is don't rush, don't rush, first of all, and then don't create relationships that aren't really there yet. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think as women, we do that a lot. I'll just talk personally, you know, we meet somebody, you know, I meet some guy and he's wonderful, you know, and I've already created this, this story. Yeah. I've created this story that just isn't, isn't backed by the facts. And so I think, you know, what I've learned is, and I, and I, I do think it comes with, it does come with a little bit of age, but you know, don't, you don't, don't rush, you know, and if you have to rush, there's, then you got to understand the risk that comes with that. And so when it doesn't work out, you're like, well, you know, I created this situation for myself. You you can't blame the other person. Um, And I think professionally, yeah, I don't don't know that, um, I don't know that I can say that that's really happened professionally because I do think there's so many checks and balances, um, you know, when you're working with, with folks now, have there been bad deals that have been done or, or deals that you wish, uh, or you took a position on something and the market changed and and you went, wow, you know, if I had to do over again, if I had hindsight, I, I, yeah, that that happens. But, you know, do I ever, have I ever really questioned the decision that was made at the time because I misread something? No, I, I, I haven't. So, so much around in my mind around kind of relationships and trust is built a little bit on faith and trusting kind of your own instincts. Um, tell me how do you how do you teach someone that if you can? If I'm here, I am a young woman and I'm like, Teresa's the person. Like I, I admire this. And you know, I love hearing you talk about your work because there's a passion mm-hmm. behind when you speak about your work that I'm completely fascinated by. Um, but the, how do you then not let kind of yourself, how do you, um, trying to find my words, how do you kind of maintain a level of being willing to take a risk and a little bit of believing in people, even if it didn't work out the last time? You gotta, you know, whether it, particularly in a personal situation, but even in a professional situation, there's gotta be a trigger that says, you know what, that was not what I thought it was gonna be, but you gotta give the next person the same kind of chance. Yeah. How do you how do you teach someone if I'm a young person and and I want you to show me and teach me explain me how do I do that without getting really caught up yeah. in all the other stuff? So so I think you know and I, I don't you know and I think I think all the companies are learning this right. So when I first came in, you know, mistakes were dealt with in a very punitive way, right? Your career could 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 be derailed by one bad decision, right? Mm. And I think. We, we were learning that you actually learn by failing. You know, a person that's never failed at anything probably is not that creative, right? <laughs> so I think that we're learning um, as, as institutions that, you know, there is gonna be a certain amount of failure. And the question is, what do you learn from it, right? And how do you course correct when you know um, that you've gone down the wrong path? But I think it also starts with acknowledging before you're starting to do something, what your own assumptions are and biases are, and what are the things that could happen that could cause you to change those assumptions, right? And that's just basic sort of looking at risk, right? So 
if I come in and I say, I absolutely know how this is going to end and I absolutely know, you know, uh, what's going to happen and what needs to happen and what the market's going to do, um, you know, you can have your own opinions, but you've got to be able to say, what are those, um, what are those signposts and things out there that are going to tell me this is not going to happen the way you started? This is not going to happen the way you assumed. Um, and, and, and I also think that, you know, this, this idea of perfection, and you and I have talked about this, is that um, no one's perfect, right? And so we are going to make mistakes. And the question is, are we making mistakes that can't be resolved or are we making mistakes that, you know, I can learn from and I can move on or have I really screwed up something, right? And so mm -hmm. I think there's different degrees of these kinds of decision-making and how much rigor you put in them depending on how much you put at risk, right? Like I said, for a 30-day deal, I'm, you know, I may not put as much into it as I would a 10-year deal. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, professionally, you know, personally, you gotta, you gotta kind of do the same thing, right? <laughs> so if, if I'm, if I'm going on a date, I'm not that worried about the risk. <laughs> right. But if I'm trying to look at this long-term, this guy has a long-term relationship, uh, I gotta kind of take a little longer look. <laughs> I gotta check, I gotta check my own assumptions, right? <laughs> you do. I gotta check my own biases, right? Yeah, you do. So I'm going to, let's switch just a little bit because something that you didn't really touch on in the book, but again, what I, I, I know about you is that um, you give a lot of yourself. Like you give a lot of yourself um, and it doesn't, may not, I don't know if you feel like it comes off to other people that way, but when I think about kind of all of the, not just the mentoring, but the stuff you do with the links, the stuff that you do with all these other organizations, um, I want you to tell me why, because you could choose one or two things and still be giving a lot. I actually think you, I'm exhausted. I don't do half as much as you do. And I'm exhausted by all the things that you do. And you're like, well, I have this thing with the, the STEM thing with the links and I've got to do this thing with this and I'm doing it. Like, why so much? Where did that come from? So, so I ask myself that same question sometimes when I'm really exhausted, actually. Um, I think that, so many people have poured into me. And as I was, when I, you know, as a little girl, I had my aunts and uncles who saying, look, um, you gotta do something with your life. You gotta, you gotta be somebody. You've gotta, uh, we've, we've worked our whole lives. Your grandparents and your, your parents have scraped so that you could be successful. And so the expectation was, that when I, when I moved up and when I moved out, I had to help somebody else. That was just an expectation that was set. Um, and, and so I think just from an early age, that was just ingrained in me that, that you know, people who, you know, and, and I don't judge anybody else that decides that's not what they want to do, but I, I just feel like that's something that I, that I should do. And then I actually enjoy it, right? Um, and you know, I think it's, it, I, I get as much out of it as I, as I give. And, um, but I do have to be careful because there's a strong demand and pull because people know I am willing uh, to work. And, and I've had my friends say, you know, there's a two letter word you need to learn. And that word is no. And, and I'm getting a little better at it, but, but 
you know, I, I agree that there's certain things that I've just got to start to prioritize because I do need, you know, kind of my own life and uh, taking stock of, of, you know, my career and that sort of thing. But I, I just love doing it. And I think it's, I don't know how we expect others to, um, not, not everyone had what I had, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they may not have that kind of guidance. They may not have that kind of mentorship. They may not have the opportunities. And so I kind of, you know, my perspective is how dare I not try to help somebody else? Yeah. So let's, let's, t- I want to talk about this a little bit more, but let's, let's talk about um, the blessing and the curse of being double counted. <laughs> I love how you said, I was like, I know exactly what she's talking about, the double count. Um, and so talk a little bit about, for, for the folks who are listening, we're, we're talking about being a black woman. It's a blessing for sure. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be anybody else, but there is a curse in being double counted. And I want you to share a little bit about what you mean by that and, and what that looks like for you kind of in your life and then how you manage it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things about how people define you, right? And so it's, it's, it's a blessing because I love who I am. Um, As you said, I wouldn't want to change, you know, any of that. But I think there's also skepticism with every step of success, Mm -hmm. right? That you got it because you're female, you got it because you're black, you got it because you're a black female, right? And so I think that underlying sense of skepticism becomes a burden and and, and what and how it manifests itself is you try to do more and you're constantly trying to show people and you're, try, you're constantly trying to do more than others and you're constantly trying to prove to others. And I don't think everybody has that burden. And so um, it, it's, it, is a, it is a blessing and a curse. And I think that because today we have a little bit more latitude to kind of, as you, as you say, it speak truth to power it also gives us freedom as a black woman because that's what we've been known for, Mm. you know? And you think about a Shirley Chisholm or Barbara Jordan or Maya Angelou or Oprah or any of those folks, they said what they had to say, right? And so it it sort of creates a space for us to be known for that. On the other hand, um, you know, sometimes I just want to be Talisa. Are there times that you're, so I, I, I've decided that it's not you got it because you got it in spite of the fact that you are. Right. That you were just so good that even though you're black and a woman, they had to give it to you anyway. They just could not find anybody who was going to be better than what you brought. Right. It's my own mental head game, <laughs> but it keeps me sane, right? It's a confidence boost. It's like, it's not because well, I'm Black. It's in spite of the fact that I'm Black, and maybe you didn't want it to go to a Black person. When you looked at your options, this was actually the best choice you had. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I, I think I've, I've said something similar to that around, um, to get where I am, I had to be yeah. good. I had to be... You know, and in my mind, I'm saying you should be further, 
but at the end of the day to even be where I am. Um, because they're, they're, you know, it's easy to say, well, I knew that wasn't going to work. Let mm -hmm. me put her to the side. Right. And so, but, but, but I still think that, you know, because, you know, she's black or she went to an HBCU or, you know, she's not an engineer and all these things that people want to say uh, about why you shouldn't as opposed to why you should. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think we carry that burden because we see it in, you know, what, what we call microaggressions today. I don't know what we called it, you know, previously, yeah. but, but you, you see it, you see it in how people talk to you. You see it in the questions they ask. You see it in your daily interactions with people. Um, and, you know, to me, admitting that it's better today than it was yesterday isn't helpful, right? It just is what it is today, right? right. <laughs> and it's just different. But um, I, it, you know, I just think there's just an increased burden to being that double counted person. So. Have you ever felt the need to respond to it or do you hear it and just keep it hopping? It, it depends. Um, I pick my battles because you can't be the town crier about everything. If you, if you, if you are that person and the only thing you're known for is, you know, complaining about this or that, you know, that, that doesn't make you as effective as you could be. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what I do is I choose, you know, when I, when I see something that I think is, um, it, it depends. If, if, if I think it's intentional um, and I think it's worth talking about, I will, I will address it. If I think it's unintentional and it's somebody that I, that I respect, you know, I will probably approach them one-on-one -on -one and say, Hey, look, you know, I'm assuming you didn't mean that, but let me tell you how I took it. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I think it's, I think it's situational, but, but I, but I also know when asked when I've met with our executives or leadership and they ask me questions about, you know, my experience or my situation. I don't hide from it. I, I'm right. You know, I tell them exactly what I, what I feel and what I think, but I do it in a way that isn't um, kind of in their face. Right. It's, I, I speak about it in a very matter of fact way. And I think delivery matters. Yeah. You know? So, you know, we, we've been through a summer of just, well, we've been through nine months of just shenanigans. Um, and now, you know, we've been talking a lot about race and it's occurred to me that I don't know that I ever thought that I would in my lifetime hear as many, particularly white men say to me, I recognize the privilege that I have, like, and they acknowledge and so, but part of the conversation for black professionals has been absolutely around right, wearing the mask mm -hmm. and how do you, how we tried and we have compartmentalized what's going on personally and in society against what has gone on at work. And have you seen that change and has it changed for you and then how? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it, I mean, I, I still think we wear a mask. Yeah. Um, I think we've, um, it's not as thick as it used to be, um, but it's still there. And, you know, I, I, you and I have talked about, so when everything happened with the murder of George Floyd and the rage, you know, yeah. the absolute rage that, that, that I felt and you felt yeah. and yeah. others felt, 
and 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 people that you know that that weren't black felt you know people felt that rage and so um and there were people at work that were espousing you know their rage and and um and i guess my point really was to what end mm. right and so i'm always thinking about it maybe i am a little too calculated and a little too um I always think about, particularly at work, to what end, right? And so how deliberate, if, if I'm going to talk about something that is as sensitive, um, as emotional um, at, at work, I wanna be able to think before I speak, because I think it's important. Um, and, and, and one of the things, you know, I, I talk about in the book is, you know, uh, when I worked for Texaco and they had the whole, you know, jelly bean lawsuit and that whole thing, that. people were all upset and emotional and, you know, on both sides. And there was all this sort of uproar going on. And one of the things that I kept, you know, as I was asked to, you know, by different politicians and regulators and other people to talk about it, I said, look, at the end of the day, um, at some more time, we all got to get together and work together. Yeah. You know, and so if I create a huge divide today, how effective am I going to be tomorrow? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's the way you talk about those things. Right. And I haven't shied away from my, you know, how I was feeling, um, what I think needs to happen, uh, my experiences over my career, but I haven't done it in a way that, you know, um, creates a permanent divide between me and my colleagues, you know? Um, and, and, I, and I've seen some, some behavior that I think will do that. And some people will chide me, oh, Talisa, you know, you're not being direct enough or not. No, I'm being very direct. I'm just not being highly emotional about it. And, and quite frankly, if I, if I were to communicate what I really feel, um, I might not be employed, right? And so, you know, that, that's why I talk about to what end, right? So what to what end? And so to the extent that you can talk about what you're feeling and what you've experienced and communicate that um, and let people take that from that what they, what they want to and what they need to and what they can take, um, I feel like I've done my job. So do you think that, and I'm going back to the mask question, that maybe wearing a bit of a mask is somewhat necessary? Or do you think it's just kind of a matter of what our own personal style is and how we decide to just kind of come to work? Yeah, I, I do think it's a personal thing. And I, I think that, that different people are gonna react in different ways, but it's, it's kind of like, you know, when we first started saying, bring your authentic self to work, right? Yeah, I think that's loaded. Yeah, I mean, and I would tell people, don't misinterpret what that means. Yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah. so um, our entire workforce, white or black, there's certain ways that they behave with their family when they're at the picnic that they aren't going to behave at work and we don't want them to. Right. Right. And so I think what I've always said is be your authentic self, but understand the culture you're in and understand how certain things are going to be perceived versus others. And that's that, that's that dance that we do, right? Mm -hmm. That's that dance that we do. That's that, 
you know, and, 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 and to a certain extent, everybody has to do it. We just have to do it a lot more and we have to be more careful and deliberate about it as black people. And so do you think in terms of, I, I think, understanding our organization's culture, um, do you think we all, especially as black people come into our companies and really do understand what that culture is? No. And, 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 and that's why I think for, the, for, for those of us who are there who happen to be black, we need to be available, particularly to African-American employees as they come in so that they understand how to navigate the culture they're in, right? Mm -hmm. And not all of them are gonna have that sort of innate um, you know, EQ to be able to kind of look around and say, I recognize that behavior and I, and I see that, that that behavior is effective or I recognize that behavior and I see that behavior is not effective, right? And so I think companies are doing a lot better to say, this is the culture you're walking into. Here's what we expect for, from you. Uh, so I do think we're getting better about that because when I came in, I just dived in the deep end. Right. right. It wasn't nobody talked about the culture. You had to figure it out. Right. Right. I, I think it's I think it's different. I think it's different now. And I, and I think we, you know, as 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 leaders, leaders and professionals in this in our companies that just happen to be black, I think it's incumbent upon us if we want you know others to succeed. No, no, no different than we do for women that come in the organization. We ought to be doing that for people that look like us. So if we think about what's happening, you know, what's been happening since George Floyd's murder and our and our our collective corporate responses as well as the individual, um, what role do you think companies really play in this entire um, narrative that we have happening right now around racial injustice, you know, social justice? What is the role of a company? So you and I have talked about this. I mean, I, you know, companies aren't uh, people. Right. They don't have a conscience, right? So they, I, they, do. they well, they say they do, but they, they don't, right? And they, they have people in the company that have the conscience, but the, but, right. the, but the institution itself does not. And so I think that they have to do what they can do. And what they can do is a lot. They can have equitable processes in their company. They can treat people fairly. They can train people to be successful. They can speak out on issues. They can, there, there's a lot that they can do. Um, can they change the hearts and minds of, you know, people around the globe and around the world and around the United States? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I think, I think what, you know, and particularly in this country, um, again, money matters. So when customers start um, demanding certain things or they're not gonna spend money with you, you see companies change, right? Yeah. When, so, so when I talk about, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about how are we gonna be more successful as a company? And the way we're going to be more successful as a company is look is reading the tea leaves. You know, where is the where's the world going environmentally? Where's the world going socially? Um, you know, well, how do I prepare for the future? Right. And 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 so I think that um, what we have to do as companies is is stop being so reactive 
and 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 start understanding where we need to go. We always say, you know, go to where the puck is going instead of following the puck. Yeah. And so th- that's 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 where I think we we we've, we've got to just do better, right? And it 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 should have been no surprise to anyone that you know we've been talking about for diversity for 20 years or 25 years or 30 years or however long it's been that at some point it was going to come to roost right? <laughs> people were going to expect it to really happen right, right so 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 to be surprised by it and not be prepared for it is unconscionable let's talk about companies being a microcosm of the communities in which they operate or the country at large and share with me your thoughts on how might this moment be a little bit different in terms of corporate engagement um, than you know previous moments? Yeah, so I, I've always said that I think you know sometimes we have unrealistic expectations of companies and we expect them to be markedly different than what's happening in society at large. And I think that I agree with you that they that they are microcosms of our society and and that they're the beliefs and the ideas and the thoughts and um, the biases that we see in our society are duplicated in our companies. And that's, that's positive and, 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 and that's negative. Um, and I think the other thing is that if you look at our society and our businesses, you know, people behave in a way that supports their self-interest, right? So, um, you know, people vote in a way that benefits them. People, support things financially that benefits them and businesses are the same way. So, you know, we lobby for causes that make sense to us and we support financially those companies that um, we want to support and we make public statements based on how we want to be perceived and and how we say we're going to act. Um, I do think this is a watershed moment. Um, And, but I think this moment reflects the pressure that, that's coming to bear on companies from their investors, from their customers, from their employees. Um, and, and, and I think that pressure is necessary. Um, it's unfortunate that it took the murder of George Floyd for that pressure to actually uh, become real to people, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and we're seeing, you know, because of this outcry and this pressure, we're seeing companies you know, state these renewed commitments to diversity, but not only diversity, but to, you know, equitable treatment of, of African-Americans. And, you know, you and I have talked about this fall. The things that I'm, I'm concerned about is how, how strong is that commitment? Mm-hmm. And is it going to be sustained? And who's going to ensure that it's sustained over time? Um, and, you know, um, I think it just takes leadership. I think it takes courage. I think it takes uh, leaders that are willing to stand up and say, yes, I think uh, we have issues and we need to do better, but I'm going to see this through. It's not just a moment for moment's sake. Yeah. So I I like to explore this idea of courage, right? Because you've you've said that before and and, and it's... um, not necessarily rare, but it is, it's not often that you hear people to talk about leadership and courage in the same sentence, particularly when we're talking about a corporate environment. So I wonder if you could just share a little bit more about what you think, what you mean when you say, yeah, you also have to be a bit courageous. Well, I, I think in this country, this issue of race is so sensitive 
And it's particularly in our times today, pretty volatile, right? So there are um, perceptions about this issue of equity. And some people feel pretty strong about it, that, that, that there is no issue, right? And that anytime you talk about doing something equitable for someone, uh, that somehow means that uh, you're taking away from someone else. And so I think uh, if, if, I'm a, if I'm a leader and I've got to stand and say, look, this is an issue and we are going to do something about it, I've got to be willing and have the courage to accept the backlash that might come with that. Yeah. And, and, and since our companies are reflective of our society at large, there is going to be some backlash. And I don't, you know, I think that some companies are going to, and leaders are going to be willing to stand up and say, I'll take that and I'll deal with it. And, and I'll, and I'll also answer it in a way that you understand my commitment. And there's going to be others that are going to say, I need to walk the fence and I can't offend. Uh, and I'm not willing to offend. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm not willing to have these courageous conversations that we've been talking about that need to be had. So, so that's what I really mean about leadership and, and courage. And particularly if you uh, are not an African-American leader. Yeah. Do you think that it's more difficult for um, our African-American leaders or those who aren't African-American to lead at this time? Or do, yeah, I think, I, <laughs> I, I think it's equal, it's just different. Okay. Well, right. how is it different? So, so if, if if I'm, you know, I'm 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 an African American leader in my company, and I'm trying to speak truth to power, and I'm going to say these are my experiences, uh, this is what I've seen, um, and this is what I think my company should do, right? And so, if my company doesn't, then you know, I say, okay, they trust what I'm saying, they believe what I'm saying. And, and, and they're going to own doing better, right? Um, but if they don't, then what does that say, right? And, 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 and if, if, if my colleagues uh, don't buy into it, what does that say, right? So I think it's a, it's a, different, it's a different lens through which we look at, at progress and look at our own power, right? And, 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 and I think if you're if you're not an African American leader, and you're sitting there and you're saying the same things that I'm saying, um, you got to stand tall. Yeah. Right. And 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 you got to say, look, I'm acknowledging that there is an issue, and I'm acknowledging that we haven't done the best that we can do, and I'm acknowledging the pain of the people that I represent, and so we're going to do this, and we're going to do it, and we're going to make a commitment to it. So I think it's, it's, it's courageous on both sides and I think it's, but I think the lens is different. So then what is our responsibility as employees of the leader who is able to make that statement, who finds the courage to say, you know what, we're not doing all that we can. We haven't, you know, we haven't given this appropriate focus, whatever that mea culpa is, um, right? You're, you're talking to, you know, your, your outside, um, external and your internal stakeholders, but as employees, what is our role in all of that, right? I, I always suggest like getting frustrated 
may it is frustrating, but it's not productive. But what, what should we be doing to support those efforts for our leaders? So I'm probably gonna respond in an unpopular way. That's fine. Um, I think everybody's gotta look at themselves and decide what they wanna do and what they wanna say and how they wanna own uh, their language in this, in this space. Because I will acknowledge there's risk to speaking up. And, you know, for me, I've just chosen to speak up because that's just who I am. And quite frankly, it's not, it's not markedly different from the, what I've been saying for, you know, for quite some time over my career. Uh, but, but I hate to put that pressure on every Black person, right? Every African-American employee. I think they've got to decide what they're willing to say and what they're willing to do and, and, and recognize that it's, it, you know, it's okay. And hopefully they're in a safe space where they're not putting themselves at risk, but not all of our companies are like that. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I think it's an individual decision that each employee and, and, and quite frankly, each leader, because not every African-American leader uh, is stepping up yeah. to say some of the things that we've heard from those people that are right. um, speaking truth to power. Yeah. yeah. Or what I think is truth to power. Yeah. It's an interesting situation. I can remember the first time this summer um, I had a white man say to me in all sincerity, in all the sincerity in the world, um, that he understood his privilege. And it took me a minute to not be cynical. Because my initial reaction was like, okay, yeah, right. You're just saying that. You know, and after a while you talked to someone in upon reflection was like, okay, this is different. For me, it was different. I had never heard someone who was not black talk about systemic racism in a corporate environment the way that I've heard it. Um, and so the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, okay, you just telling me whatever right now. Um, but I think that also made me feel like this moment was different the willingness to even be that vulnerable um, and not know kind of what my reaction is gonna be. I don't know, girl. Yeah. <laughs> we got some stuff to do. So I saw this, 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 you know, everybody's got these sayings and I saw one and I sent it to a colleague of mine and it says, it's a privilege to educate yourself about racism instead of experiencing it in your life. Yes. Right, and so I, when I, you know, I used to try to think of a different word than privilege, right? And I couldn't, couldn't quite, quite get to it. Um, but I think there is experiencing it and there's education about it, right? And so I think that's that, that's, that's that thing that, that, um, it's difficult for us to connect yeah. as people if you haven't experienced it, right? Yeah. But I do think in this moment where we've seen it on video, yeah. um, that's where that watershed moment comes, right? Yeah. And so um, I think when we looked at, 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 at all of the protests and we saw there was every type of person participating in those protests from every walk of life, from every color, every gender, every walk of life, because you know what? We all felt the same thing because yeah. we saw it, Yeah. right? 
And I think as, as black people, we've been experiencing it. Right. And, and now, and now other people are seeing what we've been experiencing our whole life. So I do think there is an awakening as it were. Um, but I wonder if people are ready for the implications of that awakening, right? Because well, that means maybe some of that privilege gets etched away. Sure. Well, you can't unsee what you've seen, right? You That's can't what unsee what you, you can't think, unsee right? it. And yeah. so if some of that privilege gets etched away, how do those people who are losing some of that start to behave? Yeah. And and to me, that that, that will be the telltale sign of you know how awake <laughs> or woke, woke. <laughs> uh, people are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, and I, our workplaces being a microcosm makes it necessary for these discussions to be difficult. That's just how they're going to be because we don't all live together. We, we work together and then we go home to wherever our neighborhoods are. We spend time with our families. I once sat through a um, diversity training and the trainer said, you should think about your, the people you surround yourself with in like your circles, like who's your closest circle and in the second circle and the third circle and pull out your family members and then see how diverse that group is that surrounds you. Yeah. And it's a great, I mean, I did it and I had to take some time to think about, I mean, the group's kind of divorced, but it's actually not as diverse as I would have proclaimed to be until I actually looked at it. Um, and so I just think this is a time for all of us to kind of really self-reflect a little bit and be honest about where we are and who we are. And if we feel like we need to do better then act as appropriate. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, you know, I, I always, you know, one of the things that I've, you know, heard, uh, particularly with Black American, uh, uh, Black executives, and they say, you know, no matter where you are in terms of how much money you have or what position you have in a company, um, you still get treated the same. So people who think that because I have a different circle or I live in a different circle or, you know, I'm living in a white neighborhood versus another neighborhood or whatever, um, you know, that it doesn't matter in how we're viewed. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I do think, you know, getting to a point where, you know, people recognize that. I don't know if it'll change our inner circle of diversity, but I think hopefully it will change people's perspectives about how, you know, Black people are treated on a daily basis. Yeah. That, I don't know if I answered that question, but. No, I, just, I think you did. It's the, it's the acknowledgement of your being. Yeah. Right. It's just the acknowledgement of your being and saying, yeah, it is different, literally because of the skin that you're in. Yeah. As much as that sucks and sounds crazy, that is the truth, right? right? That's our collective truth as black people. It is different because of the skin we're in and there's nothing we can do about that. Nothing. And, but, and but there's everything that they can do about it as a collective. Yes. Yes, and I, I think I, I think it is, but I but I but I do think it 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 it's gonna take effort, it's gonna take honesty, it's gonna take 
um, a lot of action. Mm-hmm. And and I and I just hope we're ready to make that that commitment. Yeah, I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, then, guess what, y'all? We ready. Yeah. <laughs> Always bet on black. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Always Bet on Black. To subscribe or leave a review, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. Next week, we're going to have a great conversation with Kevin Walker, Chief Operating Officer of Duquesne Light, where we're going to be talking about understanding our limits and channeling Malcolm X. I look forward to the discussion and hope that you'll be there with us. So that has been the balance I've been walking. And quite frankly, it goes with me. I'm moving towards Malcolm X. I'm much more about modeling the behavior these days. And I am not independently wealthy. So it's not like I, you know, I've banked all this stuff and now I can do it. Mm-hmm. It's just that my sensitivities today tell me that I'm more about taking care of my family from a, um, a heart place um, and, and modeling those behaviors that are gonna be skills that you know, live well beyond me with my, with my kids uh, than trying to hustle to, to do something that really um, is against those things. So it's, it's, um, it's a balance, it's still a balance. I'm not saying that I'm you know, playing a guitar on the corner because I like playing a guitar, um, but um, I'm taking more decisions that are about modeling the behavior I like to see my kids do.